And so glad to see you here. I am starting a series today that uh, will go at least at least through January and probably will go in, into, into February. I'm, uh, I'm not sure exactly how long it will entail, but it, it's about the altar of prayer. I have had through the years, particularly in January, wanted, wanted to start our understanding each year in the fact that prayer sets the stage for everything that God wants to do and accomplish within our lives. And so if we begin the year this way, which is why we have this first week as a week of prayer, and for 6 to 7 o'clock each, each night this week until Saturday night, Saturday night we'll, we'll be off, we'll, we'll be here focusing, and, and I'm going to ask that you would be a part of that. Today the title of this message is, Lord, Do It Again. Lord, Do It Again. I'm going to ask that you would turn to Isaiah chapter 65, and, and verses 1 and 2 of that, I'm reading today out of the English Standard Version because I like the way that this is worded. And it says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices." Lord, as we review this Scripture, we recognize that You are a God who pursues and You are a God who is available. You are always looking at ways in which You can reach us. And I pray today that You would take Your Word and that You would anoint it in such a way that those that are here today, whether they be here in the building or whether they are watching online, that there would be something deposited into their spirit through Your Word that would nourish them and encourage them and disciple them to become more like You. And so, Father, at the very first Sunday of this year, we dedicate this to You and ask that You would lead us and guide us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I had the chance to be away last week, and I got to enjoy watching a couple of my grandkids open Christmas presents, which was always exciting. And, and while I was away, I had a chance of, of just seeking the Lord and, and spending some time in prayer. And he began to just reveal to my heart that at the inauguration, this kickoff of a new year, that there are some things that God wants to accomplish, not only in my heart and life, but in your heart and life, that I believe that if we will be obedient to what he wants to accomplish, is going to revolutionize some of us. I believe that there are some of you that are here that 2024 is going to be the year of spiritual deliverance for you. For some of you, it's going to be a time of seeing freedom that you've never experienced before and victory that He wants to speak over your life and into your life. There are some of you who the trajectories of your life and of your families have not been good, but because of the interaction of God's grace that you're going to see those trajectories completely changed. Some of you are going to see and dream dreams and visions that God is going to be planting in your heart. That is what the Lord plans as we lead ourselves to be in His presence. Bible teacher and author Priscilla Shire was telling a story, and, and as I heard it, I went and looked it up because I wanted to make sure that it was actually true and, and accurate in the way that I was going to tell it today. But in the 1940s, there was a teacher at Wheaton College in England, and his name was Professor Edwin Orr. He taught theology. And he had decided to take some of his theology students on field trips throughout England to visit some of the historical places that had theological significance. And he thought that that would be important. One of the places 
that he took his class was a place called Epworth. It was the home and study of one of the great reformers of the church, John Wesley. John Wesley would study and teach and he would preach and he would pray and he prayed that revival would spread not only throughout England, but that it would spread throughout the whole world. And looking back now, we who can see history from this perspective begin to recognize that in answer to those prayers, there was a mass revival that took place, not only in England, but also here as well. And so the fire of God began to spread as a result of the prayers of those that were seeking revival. So those theology students visited the house where he lived, and as they went in, they went into the kitchen, and the professor there said, this is the kitchen where the, the, the meals were prepared. And they, they stood there in this small room looking around and thinking what it must have been like to see John Wesley eating at a table there. Then he moved them from there into a library. And as they ran along the library, they ran their fingers along the books that were there thinking about what it must have been like for him to come in and pull each of those books out and, and studying them and reading of them and perhaps even wrote notes in some of them. And they got to take a look at his desk as it was there in that study room and in the library. Then professor took him to the second floor. And as they went up to the second floor, they moved into the most intimate quarters that John Wesley would have had, and they walked into his bedroom, which was a very small room, and be began to file around the bed until all of them were standing in this tiny room together. And as they got to the far side of the bed in his room, one of the students noticed that on the floor were two well-worn patches into the carpet. And they began to say, what, what is this and what does this mean? Professor Orr explained that those two patches were the actual place where every single morning, not for just two minutes, but for several hours on end, John Wesley would plant his knees right beside his bed, and he prayed so long and so hard that his knees actually wore the carpet out and imprinted themselves on the floor of the fibers as he prayed for revival. The students stood there for a moment in awe of everything that was taking place there. And then the professor said, it's time for us to go. And so they left the room and went downstairs. And as they were getting on the bus, the professor's counting the number of students and recognized that he was missing one. So he went back into the house and he looked around in the kitchen and there was nobody there. So he walked into the study and there was nobody there. So he walked up the stairs and as he did so, he could hear faintly a voice coming from the bedroom. And as he walked into the bedroom of John Wesley, he could see a head that was laying on the bed. On the other side of the bed was somebody kneeling. And as he, as he listened, he heard this prayer saying, Do it again, Lord. Lord, would you do it again? And this time, would you do it with me? And the professor walked around the bed and put his hand on the shoulder of the student and said to him, Son, it's time for us to go. And rising from his knees, Billy Graham stood and joined the rest of the students on the bus that day. And then God did it again. God did it again. We can never be sure how God wants to use each of us. Graham was just a little boy from a dairy farm in Charlotte, North Carolina. But he had an open heart and an open spirit when God called him to set the world on fire. 
And every day is a field trip for all of us if we will open our minds to the possibilities of what God can accomplish through us. He can do extraordinary things through people that will pray it into their lives. And God can use it out. And we are in fervent prayers this week, proving to God that we are available in our lives and that we are hungry for what He wants to certainly do because we are praying, Do it again, Lord. Would you do it one more time and would you use us this time? I just wonder, what would happen this week if there were some of you that were brave enough to ask God, would he do it again through you? Lord, would you not allow me to be a Christian in name only? Would you make it so that I am so uncomfortable with being nominal that when I get up in the morning, I just don't read a verse a day to keep the devil away? that I don't want to just be a good person, but that I'm not all in on Christ, but I'm just trying to get by. Would you change my heart, O oh God? And would you be at work within me so that I am different and unique and set apart and filled with your Holy Spirit so that the power of God is at work within me? Lord, would you do it again? I don't want to get so caught up. Grace Assembly and moving to new buildings that we forget that this church was created to lead a spiritual awakening. And I am praying for revival. I am praying for renewal that would wake up not only our neighborhood, but our community and our state and our nation. Oh, God, would you do it again if we will pray it through and pray it in so that the whole face of the whole earth will know that our God has a son that he sent whose name was Jesus and a Holy Spirit that indwells us to change the world that we live in today. Lord, do it again. And would you use grace assembly in the move of your Holy Spirit? So many people say, well, what do you mean when you ask for revival? It means we're asking for a unique outpouring of God's presence of his Holy Spirit. The word revival comes from two Latin words, one of them vivo, which means to live, and and re, which means again. It's, in other words, it's like a rebirth. And, and, and to me, when I think of revival, I'm thinking of a, of a stirring of God's people to something that has been birthed within us that he fans the flames. I don't want to just see rebirth. I want to see a spiritual awakening that takes place within our hearts and our lives. You see, when that begins to happen, people who are pre-believers, I'm going to use that instead of lost who are pre-believers, can see and hear and detect traces of God's presence at work among people, and they are drawn by the Holy Spirit from conviction of sin into a saving relationship with God through recognition of the work of Jesus on the cross to forgive them. It's where believers avail themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and become empowered through the baptism of the Holy Spirit to enter into effective witness and a holiness that brings pleasure to God, and we take that into the public places. It's where you let God direct your steps every single moment of every single day. It's when we create a hunger within us that he wants to reveal himself and his plan and his nature through us to those that are around us. And this has always been the desire of God, to reveal himself and his nature to people on the face of this earth. And so as we begin this Sunday, I want to take just a few moments and refresh your memory with a history lesson of God's pursuit of mankind in general and you in particular. So the first point of two today is this, God's pursuit of mankind. Our text tells us that even back in the Old Testament, 
He said, listen, even when people didn't want me, I still wanted to reveal my nature to them. them. I wanted to bring revival even when the people weren't asking for it. And so all throughout the Scriptures from the Old Testament all the way into the New, we find that God has a purpose for people, that He wants to reveal who He is to them. He wanted to be known. He wants to be experienced. Do you know what great lengths He went to reveal Himself to you and me? All of history is a chronicling of God's desire to be seen and experienced in a tangible way with every single one of us. It started in the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and Eve, and He set them down in a perfect environment so that they could have a perfect relationship with Him. But you know, we have a very real enemy who is always working against God, trying to reveal Himself to people. And the revealing of God's nature to us. And he slithered into a perfect environment and he introduced sin. And they bit into a forbidden fruit. And sin didn't just enter into their perfect environment, but it slipped into the DNA of sin that's been passed down to every one of us in humanity. And it seemed at that moment that all hope was lost. But our God is never outdone. He stepped in and with another move, because Adam and Eve, they came together and they had a little baby boy named Seth. And then Seth gave birth to Enosh. And in the last verse of Genesis chapter 4, it says, Men begin to call upon the name of the Lord again when Enosh was born. And everybody began to worship God again. And the enemy wanted to stand against the revealing of God, the revelation of God, the relationship of God to humanity. So he made it that sin was introduced and perpetuated and proliferated throughout humanity during that time, and things got so bad that the entire human race needed to be wiped out, and it seemed as if the enemy had won and had had the upper hand, but God, never to be outdone, went and found a man by the name of Noah, and God told Noah, I want you to build me an ark because it is going to rain. Noah had no idea what rain was because he had never seen it. But in obedience to God, when it didn't make sense, he obeyed God and he built an ark. And that ark became the carrier through which God would preserve all of humanity. And it looked at that moment as if God had won completely, as he had wiped out everything and everyone that was evil. And he started over again with righteous people. But the enemy caused sin to proliferate again. And the attitudes of people begin to be hardened against one true God. And things got so ugly that it appeared that the enemy had won. But our God, never to be outdone, went to a little obscure town and found an obscure man by the name of Abram. And he plucked him out of this little town called Ur. And he set him on a brand new path. And God changed his name and changed the GPS coordinates on his ambitions and the trajectory of his life. And God told him, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make a brand new people called the children of Israel. And they will be my people. And I will mark them with my presence. And I will make a covenant with them so that they will know that I have chosen them. And I will protect them and I will preserve them no matter how hard the enemy fights against them. So the children of Israel were crafted and an opportunity for God to maintain relationship with humanity no matter what the enemy would try to do. But the enemy, of course, 
wanted to do everything that he could do to keep revival, to keep the revelation of God, to keep the revealing of who God is from happening fully in humanity. And so Israel was enslaved. For 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt. And I can assure you that during that time, there were some of God's people who thought all hope was lost. But our God, never to be outdone, made it so that there was a little boy by the name of Moses that was raised in the prince of Egypt's home. And at just the right time, he says to Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And after a series of plagues, Pharaoh's heart was temporarily softened and he released the children of Israel and they wandered in a wilderness for 40 years being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and through tests and trials the next generation finally got to enter into the promised land and it looked like the enemy had been beaten forever but the relentless hatred of God and the hatred of his people caused Satan to make another move he made it So that the children of Israel prospered so greatly and and enjoyed such peace that they decided they didn't need God anymore. So they created idols of their own. And the idols became as appealing to them as the one true God. And God's chosen people in peace and prosperity turned their back on him and began to worship idols. And when you get to the very end of the book of Judges and the last line of the book, it says, everybody was doing what was right In their own eyes. Kind of sounds like America in 2024. And it looked like the enemy was going to have the final say. But our God, never to be outdone, went and found a woman by the name of Ruth. And Ruth married Boaz. And she and Boaz had a baby by the name of Obed. And Obed gave birth to Jesse. And Jesse fathered several sons, the youngest one being a baby by the name of David. That's King David. The one that the prophets had prophesied about, that through his lineage would come one born that would settle this matter once and for all. And the people that were on the stage of the world at that moment didn't even know that they were already in place watching a historical move from which the enemy would have no response. For the Old Testament closed with 400 years of silence. And after 400 years, the curtain opened. And when it did... What was heard was the cry of a baby from a stable. And Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene. And it is in response to this that the enemy has never been able to tackle it completely. God the Father revealed himself in the Old Testament. Then Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus was the physical embodiment of the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yahweh tried to make it so that he could have a relationship with people as boldly as he could in the Old Testament. And he came in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And in every dispensation, he found the best way to reveal himself to humanity. God the Father in the Old Testament. Jesus the Son in the New Testament. And in every stage, people rejected the revelation of God that he had given them of himself. One scholar put it this way. The great sin of the Old Testament is that they did not believe in God the Father. The great sin of the New Testament is that they did not believe in Jesus the Son. And the great sin of our generation is that we don't believe in God the Holy Spirit. Unless a person communicates to you in speech or in gesture 
or even facial expressions. You cannot get to know him and her. What goes on behind, behind the mask of, of skin is always a mystery. And God, too, was a mystery until he broke his silence. And then he spoke once. And the first time he spoke, all creation sprang to life. There was space, there was stars, there was oceans, there was whales, there's giraffes, there was roses, there were bugs. He spoke again, it says. And John this time said, and the word from God became Christ Jesus. And John can hardly contain his excitement when he declares in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But not everyone was convinced. Just like they weren't in the Old Testament, they weren't convinced that Jesus in the New Testament, they weren't sure about this Messiah business. But what they did know was this. Whenever Jesus showed up, blind people could see. When Jesus showed up, lame people could walk, the deaf could hear, the dead were being raised. What they didn't know was that every time Jesus showed up, circumstances changed and they didn't know why. They'd never heard anybody teach like him before. In fact, whenever Jesus spoke, his words were dripping with awe and authority, and they'd never heard that before. They'd heard the Pharisees, they had heard the Sadducees, and they were nice. But they'd never heard anything like this. And it says that wherever Jesus went, the Bible tells us throngs of people crowded around him because they wanted to get as close as they possibly could because he was revealing God to them. This is illustrated to us in a very fascinating way when there was a woman that no doctor could bring healing to. And with what little energy she has left, she pushes her way through a crowd because she knows if I can just get close enough to kneel down and touch the tassels on the bottom of his robe, that power will flow from him into me and I will be healed. And he healed her of all of her diseases. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees looked and they said, this is power that we cannot compete with. This is power that we don't possess. And if we don't do something about this Jesus, we are going to lose the hearts of the people. So they devised a new strategy. And it tells us in John eleven fifty three. so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That leads me to my second and last point, God's pursuit of the world through you. I believe that the last day's strategy of the enemy is revealed right here in Scripture. In fact, it tells us in John eleven fifty four, as a result of their decision, it says, therefore, Jesus no longer walked publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because they sought to kill him, he no longer walked publicly among the Jews. This is one of the most troubling passages of Scripture, because it tells us that Jesus no longer went public. He was present. He was there. He just chose to move off into quieter corners. He no longer walked publicly. And I say to myself, are we living in a time where He is no longer walking publicly among us? 
Are we living in a time when the pressures of the world are saying, it's okay if you have a private Jesus. It's okay if you have a private relationship. It's okay if you have a private church service. Just don't bring your Jesus into public. And as a result of that, I'm sensing the, the work of the enemy in our day and age is to do everything they can do to keep Jesus from being revealed publicly because they can't compete with His power. They can't compete with His compassion. And this little passage of Scripture bothered me so much that I wanted to figure out what it was that kept Jesus from revealed, being revealed. And in John 11, 55 and 56, it says, And when the time for the Jewish Passover, when it was almost time, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple area. I want you to picture this. Passover time. You would expect to see Jesus in the temple. And they went there looking for Him. And He was not there. They can't find Him. What an indictment against the church of Jesus Christ when if people come through these doors, they can see our mission statement and they can see our vision statement and they hear what our plans are and they meet friendly people and they hear good singing and they find everything except the one who changes lives. We get so comfortable with just being together and celebrating together that we have made Jesus private within these walls. He's the only one that can change lives. There's an individual that shared with me a vision they had while attending another church years ago. They said, while I was sitting in the building, I saw a vision of Jesus pounding on the roof yelling, let me in, let me in. And they said, that was the last time we attended that church because I did not want to be someplace where Jesus was begging to be let in. And there are people going to churches that are looking for Jesus. They might not even know how to verbalize it. They just know that there's a hole and an emptiness within their lives that needs to be filled by something that can quench them. And they come in and they're looking for the presence of God. Oh Lord, don't let us fail in this task. That when they come here, they can find the one who is true and honest and can set them free because Jesus is the only one who can change lives. He literally can set you free and break the chains of your life. He can open blind eyes and open up deaf ears. He can change the trajectory of your entire family. In the Bible, it says that these people were looking for Jesus, but Jesus was no longer walking publicly among them. Theologian A.J. Tozier says that when Jesus does stuff, when he moves, he does things that are outside of the box of our comfort zone and when he does there's only two responses that take place the unbelieving person will squat down on their knees to get a better look so that they can scrutinize and be critical of that which God has done but the believing person will also drop to their knees but they will do so so that they can turn their attention upward with their hands raised and their eyes lifted up yelling out thank you God for what you are doing the religious leaders wanted to do whatever it was they could to kill the work of God. And as a result of their decisions, Jesus no longer walked publicly among the Jews. So I want to ask you this question. 
Is there any part of your life where you know that you are silencing the voice of the Holy Spirit? Diminishing, minimizing, extinguishing the ability of God to move within your own personal life. I'm talking about places where you have heard the voice of God and you know that you are outright resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe He's inviting you to restore a relationship that has been broken and your pride has been standing in the way of saying, I'm sorry. Maybe He's been encouraging you to give something or to give to this person and you have allowed your greed to say no. Or maybe the Holy Spirit has been knocking on the door of your life asking you to stop a behavior telling you don't go there and don't participate in that and you're saying God I want to give you my whole life but you leave that room alone I'm not willing to sacrifice that and in doing so you are minimizing the work of God around you when we decide and choose individually to resist the Holy Spirit we effectively kill his work within our life and if you make it a habit of smothering the voice of the Spirit in your life, He will no longer walk publicly with you. Oh, His presence is there. He's omnipresent. But He won't walk with you. In the Old Testament, He came as God the Father. In the New Testament, Jesus the Son. And when Jesus finally ascended into heaven, He said to His disciples, It's to your advantage that I go, because I'm going... And as I do, I'm going to leave you another helper. In the original language, another helper is a word that actually means another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit is not a lesser than, it is an equal to. He says, I'm not leaving you a lesser version of myself. Everything that you had in me, all of the authority and all of the grandeur and all the greatness of God the Father that is in me is now in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you. So in 2024... As God wants to reveal Himself publicly in us and through us, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we allow that to take place. You have every right and every privilege as a daughter or son in this dispensation to grab a hold of the power of the Holy Spirit and live in the full presence of God and allow the person of the Holy Spirit to be at work through you. Do you know that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. That means that all of His grandeur and all of His goodness and all of the authority of God now lives in you. But He doesn't just want to be present. He wants to be public. And there is a boldness that comes upon you when you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit with the physical evidence of speaking in other tongues that empowers you to take Christ from in the walls and begin to live it boldly outwardly so that we can bring Christ back into the public where He is needed the most in each and every one of our lives. It's God's activity in your life and it's called the manifest presence of God. The person of the Holy Spirit enables us to walk as the body of Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.12 it says, Walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner, manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes it so God is not just in us, but His anointing rests upon us. So that we, in this year, can take God public. I find it interesting that we're leaving a building on a spur off a of Fay Road to go to the main street. 
seems like a physical manifestation of something that's spiritual that God's wanting us to accomplish within our own lives. What good would it do to be on Main Street and have God be private? I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, please. I'm, I'm going to ask as many of you as possible and I just want to pray a prayer of dedication. For those of you that are guests here and you're new here, I'm going to invite everybody to come and just stand in the front. And I'm not going to do anything to scare you. I just want to pray a prayer of dedication over you as we start this year that God would do something in us that our public God could be at work within us. You're going to have to spread all the way to the walls and you're going to have to stand close. I just want you to know that you can't walk publicly in a testimony for God on your own. It starts with prayer and it starts with discipline. We have to be disciplined. Going, I hate that word. Me too, but may I invite you to be faithful this week to week of prayer? As I said, this is the beginning of a series and, and next week the title of my message is Whoever Controls the Altar Controls the Outcome. Whoever controls the altar controls the outcome. Please don't miss this series because it's going to be that important for you and that important for us that we engage in the discipline of prayer like we never have before. So would you close your eyes for a moment? Father, on this very first Sunday of 2024, brand new year, It's a year that you have plans and I ask that you would fulfill them in us and through us. You have worked since the beginning of time to reveal yourself, to bring the revelation of God and His grace and His mercy to mankind. And here we sit today in this brand new year understanding that you will use us through the power of your Holy Spirit at work within our lives to take you from where you don't walk publicly to where you walk publicly in and through us so that your Holy Spirit would be at work that whenever we walk through a hallway whether it be at school or on college whether we walk into our office whether we walk into our homes on on the buses that we may drive wherever it is that we go that suddenly because the presence of the Holy Spirit lives within us and your anointing rests upon us and the boldness that comes with that Lord that instantly the environment is changed because you are there in public living in and working through us Lord, we believe that there is this manifestation of moving us from from this location to a main street that's merely a picture of what you want the testimony of each of us to be. We refuse to have a private Jesus. So, Lord God, we can't do this on our own. So I pray a dedication prayer over your church that you would help us to be disciplined, to put you first, to not be satisfied with just being a nominal Christian with a private Jesus and a private testimony but wanting the fullness of God to be at work within us and so I pray this dedication over your people I pray this preparation over our community over our state that every time Satan thought he won God was not done yet so Lord would you do it again 
would you do it again? And use us, oh God, to see a mighty outpouring which you promised that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, declares the Lord. So Lord, we're going to pray and be disciplined and ask that you prepare us so that it can never be said about us that Jesus went private. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 